Hey, Leading Learning listener, if you represent a membership organization looking for ways to expand your online course catalog rapidly with high quality content, we have good news. At leadinglearning.com AMA, you can find out how to make online training from the American Management Association available to your learners. Through a partnership between AMA and Tagoras, the parent company of Leading Learning, you can give your learners access to more than 70 e-learning modules covering essential business topics ranging from leading and innovating, to managing projects effectively, to working in hybrid teams. For details on how to grow your catalog with courses from a true global leader in management training, visit leadinglearning.com AMA. It's been proven for decades, I mean decades, that the mind is not a recorder. And so we have to continually interact with people and take them on a learning journey that revisits what they've learned. I'm Salisa Steele. I'm Jeff Cobb, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 324, which features a conversation with Connie Malamed, a return guest. Connie helps people learn, build, and grow instructional design skills. She leads a membership community at MasteringID.com. She offers live and self-paced courses, and she writes and podcasts as the e-learning coach. Jeff and Connie get into hybrid and blended learning, including the ambiguity of those terms, the pandemic's impact on learning designers, forgetting, visual design, using community to support learning, personal networks as knowledge, and the importance of the learner's journey. Jeff spoke with Connie in September 2022. And I I don't think I'd even been fully aware of what you're doing with with courses and that sort of community that you've put together there. I'd, I'd be interested to hear how challenging was that to get off the ground and, and to get people in there and to kind of make that uh, an ongoing part of your work? It was pretty challenging to get it going. It took a few years working on the side while doing client work and the e-learning coach uh, full time. But once I started it, you know, a lot of people came. It's always challenging to be a leader to lead people. And I learn as much from them as they learn from me. But I keep telling them, but I don't think they believe me. And yes, it's, I've learned a lot about how to run a community and I have a lot more to learn. So it's exciting. Are there, are there any key tips uh, that you could share from what you've learned so far? If somebody's thinking, boy, I'd, I'd like to be able to put together that type of community for our learners, what, what do they need to, to know to not just you know, stumble right out of the gate? Sure. I would say one thing is to have lots of conversations with your potential members or your current members and find out where they're at, what they're interested in. For example, I thought that I was going to attract newbies, and it turns out that I have people in the full range of instructional design, including PhDs, one with a PhD in cognitive psychology. And when I talk to them about what they're doing, you know, everyone has gaps, of course, just like I do. And they're just nerdy. They just want to hang out, you know, with a group of people, like-minded people. So it turns out that the people who are new at it love having these more experienced people on the calls 
because, you know, when we all get together, because uh, they can learn so much, you know, from diverse perspectives. So it's worked out great. I mean, basically, I think, you, you know, my biggest tip is to be loose and flexible and you have no idea what's coming. Mm. And what do you think motivates people to participate? I mean, do they just have those knowledge gaps or are they are they looking for the peer connection? There probably isn't any secret sauce, but I guess that's kind of what I'm searching for is because um, people will sign up for this kind of thing. I know I've signed up for this kind of thing before, and then I'm a little excited at first, uh, participate, and then it sort of tapers off over time. What, what kind of keeps people motivated and, and keeps them engaged? Well, certainly people come and go, and it's real open door policy. Of course, you can cancel, and then people, some people come back. I think one thing that keeps people motivated, a, a big chunk of the people, is that they want to enter the field, mm. really interested in the courses. Other people, you know, I, I'll send out surveys, are really interested, let's say, in one topic like design thinking, and then we'll do a course in that. So I have to keep some things that are kind of advanced and then some things that are very, very basic. I think people like, as everyone says, because we are so uh, technology oriented and because of the pandemic somewhat isolated, at least for several years we had been, that people like being in contact with others and they like the live courses. When you give a live course and the difference between that, even though I am the e-learning coach <laughs> and a self-paced course, is that you can ask questions on the spot when you don't understand something and you can hear a few different explanations. One great example was I was teaching, uh, it was a pretty good-sized group of teachers, mostly teachers, and there was something I was explaining, I can't remember what, that they weren't quite getting, and another teacher popped in and said, oh, that's like an individual education plan, an IEP, and I went, yeah, that's it, you know, so you get help when peers speak up, you know, so I think they like that interaction and that human touch. Well, that's great. Well, it sounds like, yeah, you've got, you've got the chemistry going there um, and have something you can, can build upon. Now, as we've been talking, I think already the pandemic has come up, you know, once or twice, maybe three times. And I, I think it's going to be looming in the background for, for quite a while now, even as we seem to be pretty much emerging from it, more or less. Because you are so, you know, deep in the world of e-learning and because you know, e-learning became such a big thing during the pandemic, bigger than ever before, I'd, I'd really love to get your perspective on the overall impact of the pandemic on e-learning. So much had to move online, so much moved online probably that maybe shouldn't have or more rapidly than it should have. I mean, what do you see as some of the, the, the positives and negatives of this big shift that happened? Well, certainly lots of e-learning and online learning, virtual training, virtual education, you know, got a giant boost. Um, I think a lot of people began to figure out that there's a career called instructional design, and these are people or, or trainers, you know, whatever you call it, learning designers, people who can help with this. And I know a lot of professors and training groups suddenly turned to their instructional designers and said, you know, this isn't working, what should I do? And I saw right after the pandemic started, maybe two months later, in a Facebook group, I saw someone say, finally, after all these years, someone understands what I do. So I think there was a big boost for the career, and that's a positive. As a negative, and I don't want to, um, I'm happy that many, many teachers 
have found an alternative to the career that they were unhappy with because the hybrid model, which we're going to talk about in a bit, was just so difficult. I mean, there were sometimes teachers who had to speak to the computer while kids in the class were looking at the teacher on the computer. I mean, it was just absurd and difficult for everyone. So a lot of teachers, that was the final straw, left the field. And I don't want to make anyone feel guilty. But on the other, the other side of that is like, who's going to teach our kids? Several hundred thousand people in the U.S. I read, so I can't quote where that number came from. Teachers were, are leaving the field. So mm-hmm. that's big. Now, you know, I do think that should be a wake-up call to administrators. Like, what are you doing wrong? Why don't teachers have more respect? So that's one whole side of it. In terms of business, I just think that people realize that a certain amount of things can go online. And then there's always that human touch that's needed. So I I think that leads us into the whole blended learning conversation where people see technology alone is not the answer. And I 100% believe in that. Just because I'm the e-learning coach doesn't mean I think that's the only way. At Tagoras, we're experts in the global business of lifelong learning, and we use our expertise to help clients better understand their markets, connect with new customers, make the right investment decisions, and grow their learning businesses. We achieve these goals through expert market assessment, strategy formulation, and platform selection services. If you're looking for a partner to help your learning business achieve greater reach, revenue, and impact, learn more at tagoras.com slash services. Well, and we, we certainly are hearing a lot about blended learning now in our world, the leading learning world, you know, continue education, professional development. Education had to go online, meetings had to go online, annual conferences, you know, had to go online. So there's this big shift. And now as we're, you know, shifting back, we're hearing blended, we're hearing about hybrid. So I'd, I'd like to as you said, you know, this is something we should discuss. I'd like to ask you about it. I'm, I'm wondering in the in the first instance, though, do you do you make a distinction there between hybrid learning versus blended learning? Because I feel like they're being used interchangeably at this point, and I'm not sure that's really correct. I don't feel like I'm the authority to say what's correct and what's not, because in our field, and I'm guessing in most other fields, the terminology is just a mess. Mm. You know, everybody's interchanging words for other words. And I don't get too hung up on it. And I may have blended those terms myself at one point. But since the pandemic, I've become more strict in using hybrid to be what they're doing in education, where it's e-learning or um, live learning and then in-person learning, the two blended together. So you've got people who are in the classroom and people who are online simultaneously is what you're talking about. Or it could be a mix. You know, as in maybe in continuing education, where part of a curriculum involves virtual training, virtual education. So they're all together synchronously, but then there may be some other self-paced aspects of it. But in blended learning, it used to be something like that. But now, because we must have one time I made a list of all the things that you can do besides a course. And I'm sure there were at least 25 or 30 things. I'm talking about you can make a wiki, you can make an information graphic, an explanatory video. With technology, it's almost infinite now. And so 
I think of blended learning, and this may be my interpretation, as pulling together many different approaches, the best approach for each performance objective, and pulling them together into a blended learning package or curriculum. That's how I think of blended learning. And so in your mind, then, if I'm understanding right, blended doesn't necessarily have to be online and offline. You can blend things online, you can blend things offline. And as you said, it's it's more about the taking advantage of the different type of media and methods to pull it all together and, and to provide that kind of dynamic learning experience by doing that. That's how I think of it. I'm not sure how the rest of the world is thinking of it. I, know, I certainly know some people are thinking of it that way. But then there's the downside. And I interviewed on my podcast uh, someone who was an expert in blended learning, and she said the biggest downfall is the mishmash that it can create and the confusion. Because just like in online and e-learning, we don't want people to get confused about a user interface. We want the user interface to be transparent to the learner. In that same way, if you're using 15 different types of learning, every time someone has to try a new approach, it uses up some cognitive resources. So we have to really stop and think about how can we pull together a holistic plan that isn't using every great type of learning that fits the performance-based objective, and yet is easy for people to slip into from one, going from one to the other. So maybe you would, here's an example. Um, Let's say someone is teaching how to interact with um, the members of an association. Maybe there are some problems and there's some customer support and there's some training for that. Well, it's possible that watching some videos would be great because we're modeling how to act, how to behave, how to conduct ourselves. But then maybe we'd add on something else. A discussion would be great. Have you tried this? What worked? What didn't? That kind of thing. So a few modes can work okay, but you don't want to expand it to too much where people are feeling like, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do next. And so at least in terms of kind of mixing, blending modes, um, you can use that to, well, you can use the modes that are best for that particular, whatever particular outcome you're looking for. So if you need to convey that information, if you need to do that modeling video is great. If you need people to then try to reflect and think and, and express how they would use that in their particular situation, then discussion added into that makes sense. But I, I think what you're saying too is just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. So don't take advantage of, you know, as you referenced earlier, there are thousands of different ways to do things now. So you, you don't want to overwhelm people. I'd be interested in when it comes to face-to-face versus online or, or face-to-face blended with online, I guess is what I should really be saying, because I feel we get a lot of attention on that now. And in the past, when, when people were talking about, say, something like a hybrid meeting, they usually were talking about there are people sitting in the room and there are also people online simultaneously kind of participating in, in the same thing. But I, I get the sense now, while that's still happening, definitely, I think there's more of a sense now that as a group, let's have the group do some things online and some things face-to-face. You know, so it might be a flipped classroom sort of thing or just, you know, using both online and offline modes. From the, the standpoint of, you know, somebody designs learning experiences, what do you see as the potential advantages and disadvantages of of that? I mean, I think it's great if it works for the audience and for the content, you know, for the situation. 
adult learners, you know, a lot of them like just sitting, you know, rather than sitting through 30 minutes of e-learning, they, you know, if they can skim a PDF file quickly and get through it because everyone's busy, then I think it's great. I can't tell you how many people come to me, client, potential clients, and say, I need you to put this course online. And it's just a PDF. You know, it could be done as a document. There's no interaction. There's no uh, engagement or feedback. But I also want to say that we need to take the audience. Of course, it's kind of obvious, but we should always think about the audience. You know, maybe some of these people are subject matter experts and they don't have one extra second. So we have to keep that in mind. Or maybe we've got a group that um, doesn't know technology very well. Well, we have to keep that in mind, too. We're not going to hand them out um, a virtual reality headset and say, go for it. So we do need to keep that in mind all the time, too. What else are you paying attention to now as we're Again, I mean, maybe the pandemic's a backdrop. Maybe it, maybe it's not. Maybe we're just, you know, evolving with uh, what we can do with learning and technology. But what are some of the trends and, and new developments that you're really paying attention to right now and, and maybe you're excited about? Well, I'm always looking at the research for what is the best way to help people learn. So that's just an ongoing bottom line interest or requirement for what I do. And, and it changes some, too. But um, some of the other things are, you know, I think that micro learning is great because everyone is busy. People can quickly get in and get out. Uh, so I think micro learning, which micro learning is not defined by a time limit as much as it's defined by meeting one small outcome. That's the best way to think of it, I think. Other things are, I think, the approach towards blended learning. I think the awareness that since we were isolated for so long, I think people became more aware of how much we need human contact. So I think that's another great thing that I'm paying attention to and learning more about. I know I've seen you uh, write about, and I, and I think you've even kind of gone back and revisited this some about forgetting. And mm. you know, how, how do we retain what we learn? Because I think that's it. Just seems like such a big issue. And I, I'm sure I feel it most acutely in my world because this is the world I'm in. But you know, people attend conferences, seminars, they go to webinars, they they get whatever is is delivered during those sessions, and it's it's gone. Uh, you know, days, weeks, certainly months later. How do you these days think about promoting retention, stemming, forgetting, so that people do actually retain what they've learned and, and, you know, are able to, to put it to use and actually change their, their lives positively as a result of it. I'm really glad you brought that up because that is actually something else I'm paying attention to, which is grabbing the best from user experience, design, marketing, all these different fields that somewhat overlap with ours. And one of the big ones is taking that customer journey and bringing it into the learner's journey and that's how we get people to retain, is we take them on a learning journey. It's been proven for decades, I mean decades, that the mind is not a recorder. And so we have to continually interact with people and take them on a learning journey that revisits what they've learned. So if there's been a webinar I think you have to do follow-up if you want people to remember it. And then not just follow-up, some form of reflection. And I'm finding that uh, discussion 
is probably one of the best ways to reflect because you hear people verbalize things that you may have been slightly thinking, but you didn't put it into words. And then you hear other people's responses and everyone has good ideas. So there's a kind of like a crowdsourcing effect where you get a lot of input from others. So I think after these webinars, we just have to, and conferences, we have to get together again in special interest groups or, or some way, little communities of people who went to the conference, some way to help us retain and use. And it's been proven that one learning intervention cannot work. So I try whenever someone asks me to teach a course to try to break it up into two days rather than one eight hour day, which I see people it could be the most fascinating thing that they really are interested in. By three or four o'clock, their their brains are exhausted. Yeah, I know that's that's definitely true of me. There's only I always get this when I'm going to say visit a museum, for example, and, I, and I'll walk around. And by the time I'm like on the third or fourth room, I'm just like, I, there's nothing else can fit in my brain at this point. You know, there's just no way that I can spend hours in here. I mean, I, maybe I'll get some some enjoyment just from the pretty colors or whatever. But uh, right. in terms of really absorbing it, yeah, I've I've reached my limits. Now, you said something there, you know, since you are now really involved in, in community, leading community, facilitating community, it seems like community in general can play a, a very helpful role with respect to retention and, and application. Do you consciously try to facilitate and, and use community in a, in a way to support retention, to, to stop forgetting among the, the audience that you're serving? I do. I mean, in, in the very I, once a year, I teach a very big instructional design class. And in that class, you know, it's live so we can talk. They all have exercises to do. There's a forum where they can ask questions, which people don't use as much as just coming to the class and talking. So I do try to do it. And one thing I'm finding is that if somebody really wants to learn and they're really dedicated and motivated, they take advantage of everything. And for those who are just kind of like trying to slip by for one reason or another, they could have a elderly parent who's sick with COVID. I have no, I'm not judging. I don't know what's going on in their world. They don't get as much out of it. And then it all comes down to, you know, you can't force people to learn and retain. <laughs> kind of sad. I try, but no, you can't. Now, it's such an important point because I think a lot of times we we may convince ourselves that if we just design it right, people are people are going to learn. And of course, we have a responsibility to design it right, but people are only going to learn if they want to learn, if they're, if they're going to engage with it. And it can be easy to, to forget that or, or, or not give that enough emphasis sometimes. I know you've done a lot of work with visual design, and that's you know what we talked to you about the, the last time you were on the podcast. So I did, I did want to check in on that and see... You know, if there are any ways your thinking around visual design has evolved, you know, as you're looking at things like community, as you're looking at things like blended learning and uh, just other developments over the, the past few years, um, anything new in, in your thinking there? It's two-sided. On the one hand, I think it's more important than ever. People are using infographics to teach, you know, as, as one of the teaching mediums, just, hey, here's this infographic, learn from it. And, you know, that has to be very well designed. On the other hand, I think there are other things that are more important than visual design, which is kind of blasphemous for me to say, which is, you know, really understanding our cognitive architecture. People can only process three to four things at one time. So I feel like, for I mean, of course they need to be integrated, but the very first thing you have to do is understand how people learn. 
visual design, the visual aspect of, of our materials is part of that and aesthetics is part of that. But there's something, there's a bigger hole there. Mm-hmm. And I also think that the, as a field that people are improving, becoming more aware of it, um, aesthetics is unbelievably important in the sense that it makes your work more professional and believable. And that's a whole aspect of it that perhaps people don't even think about, but you get it, trying to get the colors right. But there's just like a real high level where if people respect the thing that they're, the materials they're working with, they'll be more motivated to learn. So it is highly important, but it's not the, the key thing. The key thing is how do people learn and apply and transfer what we're trying to get across. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I do think as far as visual design goes, one of the things that, that I've personally found extremely helpful over the last several years is just it's it's gotten a lot easier to I think, to put high quality visual elements into whatever you're doing, because, you know, whether it's stock photography that actually is halfway decent or tools like Canva or, or whatever that, you know, that you can put together visuals that, you know, I'm not a designer, I'm not, you know, I'm not an artist, but I can use those tools to do some some interesting things at this point, which uh, I think is, you know, by and large, a, a good thing. I'd love to hear about your own approach to lifelong learning at this point. I mean, you, you've evolved some and in, in you're career and sort of how you're approaching your work that you've talked about. I'm wondering, has, has the pandemic um, or, or, you know, any of this evolution that you've gone through or new things that you're learning, anything prompted you to, to change how you're approaching lifelong learning, um, any kind of new habits or practices that, uh, that you're engaged in? You know, um, as I mentioned, I do see more value in community than ever before. I also know that I can't learn everything. So really, I'm a believer in that my network of knowledge includes my friends and acquaintances who know a lot about different fields. So in some ways, I may have given up about trying to learn endlessly and become expert in gaming. If I have a question about games or someone asks me a question, I just ask Carl Cobb. Right, yeah. And it's just made my life slightly simpler to just accept the fact that um, I cannot be an expert in all of the diverse areas. So I I always recommend to people, pick the ones that fascinate you. I'll be fascinated with the cognitive psychology of visual design forever. So I can just zero in on that. And then there's Patty Shank with all of her research and putting things out there and Julie Dirksen. So there's so many people that I can go to and ask questions and I don't need to know it all. It's wonderful. Well, and I have to note, too, that each of those people you mentioned has been on the, the Leading Learning Podcast. And one of, one of the realizations I've come to more and more lately is being an expert now really, I think, is about cultivating and, and curating a, a network of expertise. I mean, you might have your core contribution to that network, as you're saying, you know, visual design. But if, for example, you're going to be an e-learning expert broadly, that that's just about impossible for a single person to to truly be an e-learning expert these days. You have to have your Julies and your Carls and your Patties and you know that you can reach out to and and pull together as you're trying to advise others and and um, use your expertise to help others learn. Um, it's amazing that you that other people can be part of your network of knowledge.
Connie Malamed leads a membership community at MasteringID.com and writes and podcasts about all things learning as the e-learning coach. You can find links to her sites and to her Twitter account in the show notes for this episode at leadinglearning.com slash episode 324. At leadinglearning.com slash episode 324, you'll also see options for subscribing to the podcast. And we would be grateful if you would subscribe if you haven't yet, as subscriptions give us some data on the impact of the podcast. We'd also be grateful if you would rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, especially if you find the Leading Learning Podcast valuable. Jeff and I personally would appreciate it, and ratings and reviews help us show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. Go to leadinglearning.com slash apple to leave a rating. Lastly, please help us grow the leading learning community by spreading the good word. At leadinglearning.com slash episode 324, there are links to find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.